From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, a special parenting in the pandemic. Society isn't likely to hum again if moms and dads can't figure out what to do with their kids. Colorado has a child care crisis. Parents want to get back to work, but they don't know what their child care answer looks like. And until we can help them figure that out, this economy is not going to be able to get going again. Meanwhile, they've become de facto teachers with classrooms closed, and they're juggling their own mental health and their child's. This teen mom feels disconnected. Because we were so used to going to Hope House and seeing like other moms, so it's been kind of rough on us. Then, questioning an old trope, the summer slide that kids lose what they've learned over the summer. Parents may worry that slide will be even steeper now. Are those fears justified? The world turned upside down for many parents when the coronavirus hit. news just keeps coming and coming. And I think especially if you have a kid, it's more intense during this time. You're not only concerned with yourself. I mean, you're mostly concerned with your kid and how your kid is uh, (laughs) experiencing childhood. Like, what kind of a childhood? It's so hard because I have two special needs kids, grades first and second, and then I have my daughter that's in fifth grade. I live out here in the middle of nowhere, and the Wi-Fi really only works in the morning. So we have to really time it out just right so that my daughter can do her work because everything of hers is all online. Well, you know, the number one thing that parents want to do is keep their kids healthy and safe. Uh, And right now, both of those things are a struggle for many families. We surveyed our clients in mid-April and in 87% of households, at least one wage earner had lost their job. So um, parenting right now is saying it's challenging is an understatement. Colorado has a child care crisis. Parents want to get back to work, but they don't know what their child care answer looks like. And until we can help them figure that out, this economy is not going to be able to get going again. The voices of Bill Jager of the Colorado Children's Campaign, Sally Bowden of Valley Settlement, a nonprofit in Carbondale, Steph Sherman, a laid-off substitute teacher from Durango, and Adam Perry, a paralegal in Boulder. So many unknowns. Child care, summer activities, school in the fall. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a Colorado Matters special, Parenting in the Pandemic plus continuing coverage for the rest of the week. We're going to start with Michelle Barnes, director of the Colorado Department of Human Services, and Kim Schultz, senior vice president of youth development for the YMCA of Denver. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Good to be with you, Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Michelle, we're at a turning point. Businesses are reopening. Some parents are being asked to come into work. But uncertainty, indeed, rains till at least the fall. Who is hardest hit by this? It's a great question, Ryan. I'm not sure that it's a matter of hit harder or less hard. It's just hit in different ways. So we're finding a lot of the vulnerable families in our community are really struggling because their base needs are in question. They don't have enough food. They're worried about losing their apartment. They're worried about just being able to survive and concerned they're falling one more rung into poverty. 
other families have other concerns about investments and will their kids be going off to college and how to make sure their child's education is continuing. So we're finding different concerns depending on where you were where you were when the crisis started. We know that child care centers, at least some of them, have been open throughout the pandemic. And we'll talk about the changes that they're going through in just a moment. Uh, but many families were also planning on day camps and sleepaways. Governor Polis has said he'll have a decision soon on whether they can open. Can you maybe give us a sneak peek? Well, I know right now what we're looking at is how we can continue to reopen things safely. And so we've already agreed that certain programs can be open um, if they're run through a child care center. So we will have all-day programs for young children during the summer, but it'll just be a little different. It won't be groups of large groups. It'll be groups of 10, and it won't be um, maybe in the same space it was. It may be utilizing more outdoor spaces. So we're slowly looking at everything we can possibly reopen and maintain safety for our young ones. When you say groups of 10, you don't mean total in one child care center, but you mean within child care centers, groups of 10 sort of segmented out. I guess I ask that because the question will be, what is the overall capacity in the state? Is it reduced because of this? Yes, it is groups of 10. So you could be a larger center like a Y. Kim, I'm sure we'll talk about, yeah. where you are able to to take into account multiple groups of 10 kids. Um, and that's not a problem. They just need to be socially distanced. And there's a lot of guidance and rules on how to do that. But it's not 10 per facility. It's 10 per child care grouping. Um, and, and we are finding that the child care capacity in Colorado is reaching a crisis point. A lot of our centers have closed. They weren't able to make it through the pandemic and are not sure that they're going to reopen at any point. We're seeing some light that some of them are reopening, but we don't have any idea yet on how much our supply of child care providers will be diminished um, as people start reopening the summer. You call this a crisis point. I think that's notable. And what you're saying is that many child care centers, like many other sorts of businesses, uh, have not, may not survive the economic hit of the pandemic. Um, as parents look for child care, um, how has it changed? How has it gotten more difficult since the virus hit beyond just the numbers shrinking? Well, the biggest change we're seeing is the parents needing care for their children who are elementary school aged. Uh, normally, those kids would be at school during the day. They have, yeah. have after-school programs. And so the kids were safe and cared for for most of the biz- traditional business day. Now those kids are home all summer, and there just isn't um, as much supply of programs for elementary age kids as there's going to need to be during the summer. Well, this is a good That's point to bring Kim Schultz in. She's with the YMCA of Metro Denver, which is the largest child care provider in the region. And uh, Kim, the rules say you have to have children in much smaller groups indeed now. How, how does that affect the number of kids you can serve? Well, it definitely has um, decreased the number of youth that we can serve at our facilities. Um, we've been providing, we've been working with the collaborative with the state in providing emergency child care since March 23rd. Um, and it's been very small groups. It's been no more than 45 youth in our facilities. Um, all of the fitness facilities have been closed. So we have been able to spread out and have group sizes of 10 youth or less in each of our 
you know, studio rooms or gyms um, or multi-purpose rooms. So we've just been able to spread out, but we've been literally probably serving about one sixth of what we normally serve. And then coming into summer, there'll even be less than that. It'll be about one fifteenth of what we normally serve during the summer months. One fifteenth is what you'll be able to serve. That's because of the social distancing requirements. Um, social distancing requirements, we're not able to have access to schools like we normally have. Um, we don't have access to a couple of large school districts. And again, since we've kind of been in the weeds uh, this entire time providing emergency child care, I think we all have come to realization of we know what it takes to keep kids safe. We haven't, have, we haven't had any confirmed cases of youth or staff with COVID, and I think we've done it safely over the last over the last couple of weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks. Um, and so we want to continue doing that and providing it safely. So they, it is gone with the days of serving 250 kids in a summer programming where we have to really minimize the numbers to keep kids safe and to keep staff safe and really do quality programming for our youth. Yeah, what would you say is the best lesson learned from the past eight or nine weeks in terms of keeping kids safe? What do you know now that you didn't know then? Um, I mean, definitely, I think it, we've been pretty stringent with the group size, and then we've also been pretty stringent on hand-washing methods. I mean, I would argue that we've always had a pretty good practice of hand-washing at the YMCA, but we definitely have ramped that up. I think in addition to, we've yeah, been pretty k- careful. Kids don't want to wash their staff. hands. I never wanted to wash my hands as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and now we get to watch you wash your hands okay. and sing a song with you as you wash your hands. That's what we get to do now. And I think the other thing that has kind of kept us safe is we've really tried to keep um, the same counselor, the same staff member with the same group of kids for the majority part of the day. Oh. I think that's been our big kind of lesson learned of like, okay, this is this is working well for us. We've also limited all of our parents, you know, during the, the during this whole pandemic, we've served 85% of our families that we've been serving our healthcare workers. And they've been very flexible with not coming in our facility. We've done hug and go lines where they pull up at the Y, right? We check temperatures, we go through their wellness checks, and then we allow kids in the facility. So we haven't even been allowing parents in the facilities to kind of minimize the amount of um, traffic that is in them. It's, and I, it, I think it's worked. So we're going to continue that during the summer months. Okay. Interesting lessons learned from the pandemic. So, Michelle Barnes, you, you earlier described this as a child care crisis. I, I know that there is some federal money available to help with this. How does Colorado increase capacity so that parents who are in many ways drivers of the economy know that their kids are taken care of? What What are the solutions here? We're exactly right. Colorado's gotten about $42 uh, million from the federal government as part of CARES Act to focus on child care. We've spent some of that already um, offering emergency child care for essential workers. Yeah. So if you were a frontline worker and you needed to continue to work and your child care had fallen through, that was offered at no cost to the family up through Memorial Day. We've also spent money um, of the CARES Act money focusing on getting low-income families to be connected to child care on an ongoing basis. There's always been that, abil- that availability for that child care, but we've expanded it so we can get people um, set on an ongoing basis. Right th- now, those are presumably with- people with fewer options. That's right. They have fewer options, and child care is just not something they could afford on a regular basis. And so if I'm a parent in that position, what what do I do to access that? Like, let's just be brass tacks here. Sure. 
Uh, the easiest way to do it is called 211, which is a state hotline set up, and we're running it through United Way, and they will connect you to services, whether it's child care, food assistance, rent assistance, in your local community. Okay. So it's as simple as calling 211. And I've been interrupting you, Michelle. Keep going with your thoughts. No, it's all right. <laughs> so the, <laughs> we're looking at the rest of the funding now to figure out how we can um, reopen and sustain the child care sector. It's already a, a part of our economy that operates as small businesses with very, very low margins. Mm. So families pulling their kiddos out because of COVID, because um, they were laid off and aren't working, so they don't need the child care, has been just decimating to this sector. And so now we're looking at what kind of support can the state and local communities offer to help these centers not just reopen in the short term, get back to being able to run with a you know a profit. So we're working with partners, child care providers, uh, parents, families across the state to look at all the options to do that. $42 million seems like a lot of money, but when you spread it across the entire state and the thousands of child care centers we have, it doesn't go very far. So we're trying to be really creative and find what's going to work to make sure as many kids as possible have safe and affordable child care. I have to think that a lot of these are indeed small businesses and that it may be the smaller players, the, the sort of mom and pop shops, for lack of a better term, that are disproportionately affected. They might have a, a smaller cushion. Do you think that's true? That's definitely true. If okay. you're a child care center and you have 10 kids that come on a normal basis, five of them pulled out because of COVID, you've just cut your revenue by half. And that's really hard, as any small business owner knows, that's really hard to sustain and recover from. This is Parenting in the Pandemic, a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. I just had to read this post on Facebook from a friend of mine who's also a dad. Parents, he says, are the unnamed essential workers. All these schemes fall apart if darn near every parent wasn't stepping up and saying, sure, I'll figure out how to make this work somehow, like everyone just assumed they would. I haven't seen a lot of love, he says, thrown in parents' direction. So here's this. Thanks. Keep up the good work. You're holding society together right now. And that's the focus of our program this hour. Let's return to my discussion with Michelle Barnes, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Human Services, and Kim Schultz. She's Senior Vice President of Youth Development for YMCA of Metro Denver, one of the state's largest child care providers. And Kim, I, I want to look forward a few months to when kids would normally go back to school. Th that will likely be radically different as well. A lot of districts are talking about a hybrid model where kids would be in school buildings part of the time, learning at home other days. Uh, Jefferson County has a scenario where kids would be physically at school one day a week. How does an organization like the YMCA adjust for that new normal? I mean, that is the golden question, actually. <laughs> um, I mean, that is the question. I think we think about it every day. I think the YMCA has been around for so many years, a little over 150 years, and we've continued to adapt during times like this. And I think this is an opportunity for us, again, to adapt again and really think differently um, what the fall can look like. We get emails every single day 
from parents. Um, I have one from a parent who's a teacher, and her kiddo has been in the YMCA after-school program for the last five years. And she's asking me, what does that look like for she's going to be considered an essential employee in the fall? And if her child is reporting one day a week to school, how can the Y serve her the other three to four days a week? Um, and that's that's a hard question. I mean, our we have to think differently about our staffing model. During the school year, we staff high school students who come from high school afterwards to yeah. right work in after school programs. We have college students that work two days a week on the days that they don't have classes. And if they're all in this hybrid model, I mean, that takes the staffing pool of people that are available and it just limits it to be able to provide full day programming for youth. And I know that it's going to be needed. So it's something that we haven't really, I mean, in all transparency, we haven't worked out yet. We have thrown around a ton of ideas um, and we have to work really closely with school districts because we're going to need community partners to help us. We can't do it alone. We're going to need districts to help provide us space and we're going to need places for youth to work on their e-learning during the day. We're going to need support around that. I think there's just going to be so many different caveats that we're going to have to look at, and we're going to have to really rely on each other and community to really support each other in different buckets across the city. I mean, this really sounds like a radical reinvention of childcare and the schedule around it, the needs around it. Michelle Barnes, do you want to reflect on what the fall might look like and what conversations are happening at the state level? Sure. There's kind of two different groups timelines we're working on. One is how to get families through the summer, yeah. which is a little bit different problem. And then the second, what do we do when schools reopen? Luckily, uh, in Colorado, we have early childhood councils in every community, and they're already working with the local school districts to figure out what the plan might be so we can spend the summer getting programs and opportunities and systems in place to be able to provide child care, regardless of what the um, school calendar looks like for that community. As you know, Colorado is a local control state, so decisions about how public schools will operate will be made school district by school district as opposed to um, at the governor's level. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to work and meet the needs of every community. Um, now, right you, now, you said earlier that the real the real thorny issue was elementary school kids, that they're sort of the new population that has to be accounted for. So that has to be a part of the discussion, right? It absolutely is. We've In Colorado, we've always had a tight market for toddlers. It's really hard, as any parent knows, that if you have a, a, a real young one in your family, it's really hard to find child care for them. What we found with this pandemic is normally the school operated as child care or activities for the young ones after school. But with school day changing, the schedule changing, possibly being shortened, we need to come up with a system to provide that kind of care, quality care, after school. And organizations like um, Kim's are critical to figuring that out and finding out how they can step up and take on as much as possible. And that's happening around the state. Uh, we have local partners doing amazing things in communities and being really creative on how they're going to meet the need in their community. Just briefly, Michelle Barnes, is this very uneven across the state? Uh, in other words, we've heard from Kim Schultz, who works in the metro area, but is this tougher in rural areas, and is it just disproportionate? It is tough in rural areas. And you may go to some of the counties in our state, more rural counties, where they only had one child care provider uh, prior to COVID. That provider is now shut down, oh. so there isn't any licensed uh, quality care available for families. So we're having to be really creative in those in those communities. 
communities like the Denver metro area have a different problem in that um, there, while there's a lot more child care, there's a lot more employees that are um, losing their jobs and finding that they can't pay for the care. So affordability becomes a bigger issue. The need is disproportionate there. That's Michelle Barnes, Executive Director of the Colorado Department of Human Services, and we heard from Kim Schultz, Senior Vice President of Youth Development for the YMCA of Metro Denver. Alyssa Fimbres of Arvada got pregnant when she was 17, and she's been relying heavily on Hope House, a nonprofit that supports teen moms. One major, major thing that they help me with is diapers and wipes. I don't know where what I would be doing if I did not have to have them. They're helping me with my GED, and they offer parenting classes. So I've taken like mostly every parenting class because I just like being a first time mom. Like I don't know what I'm doing, and just like. For them to be able to provide that for me has been, like, so helpful. Before the pandemic, Alyssa says she was at Hope House almost every day with her now two-year-old daughter, Analia. That is no longer possible. Being, like, isolated from everybody, I feel like that's been really tough on me and my daughter. Because we were so used to going to Hope House and seeing, like, other moms and stuff. So it's been kind of rough on us. Alyssa used to work at a children's store, but quit at the start of the pandemic. She was afraid of bringing COVID-19 home and exposing her relatives. Another struggle? She says she sometimes has to bring her daughter to the supermarket, hoping she'll use a mask her grandmother made. She won't wear it at all. So, like, I feel, like, horrible. And people, like, look at me and they're like, oh, my God, like, why doesn't that mom have a mask on her kid? Why is her kid in the store? Another picture there of parenting in the pandemic. Some good news. Alyssa says she's on track to earn her high school diploma this summer. And tomorrow, she interviews for a new job. And our special parenting in the pandemic continues the next half hour with mental health. Yours and your kiddos. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thank you to Colorado Public Radio's community of support, your ongoing commitment to supporting CPR, and your donations during the recent membership drive are keeping CPR strong. Thank you for making an impact, for giving for those who can't, and thank you for making the spring drive a success. This is Parenting in the Pandemic, a special from Colorado Matters and CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and I'd like to play this observation from Jennifer Mitkowski of Highlands Ranch. The hardest part about parenting during the pandemic, for me, it would be really the emotional toll it has taken on everyone. I have a three and a six-year-old, and the six-year-old has really struggled, I think mostly with the unknown. Um, She keeps asking when it will be okay to go see friends and and I don't have that answer and emotionally that's been probably our biggest toll. Now I'm also working in healthcare so I'm still going into work every day so the homeschooling has been a whole other set of challenges but as a parent to see your child um, really struggle emotionally because they can't see friends has been has been the hardest part for me to deal with. 
Well, Craig Nippenberg of Denver is a therapist who writes about children's development and behavior, and he's going to take listeners' questions along with ours now. Hi again, Craig. Good morning, Ryan. Good to be back on again. Jennifer is at least the second parent this hour saying, yeah, my life's stressful, but what really worries me is my kid. Can you help us understand what's going on, like, chemically in children's brains yes. as, as they cope yeah. with this constant disruption? Well, first of all, there, there's what she pointed out there, the, the not seeing her friends. I mean, kids being with their friends and wrestling and roughhousing and doing each other's hair is the most basic innate drive. Uh, in their brains, and we've been asking them to not do that. Uh, secondly, with stress, so the chemical cortisol is a stress hormone, mm-hmm. and it's really designed when you have an immediate, cri- an immediate crisis, and you, you, your blood flow goes to your arms and legs, so you can escape or fight. Uh, your memory really etches it in, and it's designed to help you not go through that experience again um, and then dissipate. In a situation like this, the kids are experiencing sort of ongoing uh, increased cortisol levels. So it's not a one-and-done stress. This is like every day you wake up. I wake up every day, and I'm like, well, what day is it? I don't even know what day it is. Same as yesterday. Um, They're waking up and thinking about playing with friends, and they can't. Uh, And so that's an ongoing increase of cortisol, which really – also makes us grumpy. So the last couple of weeks in particular have had more irritable kids and teenagers and parents. Everybody's just irritable. Because if my drive is to go out and roughhouse with my friends or, you know, whatever the activity is, if, if I don't have that, I will release that in other ways, perhaps less constructive ways. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Does that mean probably coming out as your brother or sister, or your parent? <laughs> does that mean because you talk about cortisol being related to memory? Does that mean that we are etching in bad memories yes. right now? Uh, yes, and, and hopefully good ones. I've really encouraged on my Facebook Live program for parents to find ways to, and, and for kids to find ways to make some fun adventures out of this that you'll also remember. But yeah, that that's nature's way of keeping us safe in the future. You you want to remember what you experienced, and so that you don't repeat it. So there are gonna the kids, these kids are gonna remember this when they're eighty nine to hundred years old. Wow. Um, as past generations, you know, my parents remember the depression. My my dad had stories about that one after another. Um, so yeah, but hopefully we're getting some adventure memories in there too. Okay, so the idea is to mix it up, because if you're going to etch memories, let's make them a, a, at least a mix. Let's make them as positive as we can. I, okay. I had a beautiful one on May Day. My daughter and I took flowers around the neighbor, and my four-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter joined us for the first time. And I think she'll remember that the rest of her life. Uh, I want to listen to Kate Badeline's experience. She lives in Denver. She has three elementary-aged kids. One of the really difficult events for us recently was trying to prepare our son for going to spend some time outside. He wanted to meet a friend of his to ride bikes. And I found myself getting him gloves and getting him a mask and hand sanitizer, even though he and his friend were going to ride bikes across the street from one another. And after he left, I just sat at the kitchen table and cried because I just made him afraid of spending time with his best friend since kindergarten. Oh, could you reflect on that? Wow, 
that that just is a total gut punch. But the, the kids do need to play, and and so I, I liked her decision to let him go riding with his friend. But we also need to make sure they do have some of that fear, so they wear their mask, they don't take it off, and they keep the distance, and they don't start doing their rough and tumble play. And and so it really is a balance of saying, yeah, we we want to open up a little bit more. What I'm recommending is parents, because all parents have sort of different standards on how seriously they're, you know, quarantining and you have parents who are high risk categories so they can't open up very much. But you find another kid whose parents sort of have the same level of health care as you do. And then you slowly kind of introduce a child with bike riding or both parents go to the park with the two kids and you make sure they have their distance and kick the soccer ball. So it's it's really encouraging parents to start to slowly kind of expand their circle and include other trusted ones uh, in that circle. Yeah, this makes me think of what we heard from Steph Sherman of Durango, who's having conversations about distancing and rules uh, with her seven-year-old Colby. My son is a social butterfly, and he's just like, Mom, can we go to the store? Can we do this? Can we do that? And I'm like... Nope, 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 nope. And then, you know, I try to explain to them how the virus works. So it's not just me being mean or, or an introvert or whatever. Like, I have to keep you away to keep you safe because my son has multiple health problems. So it's trying to tell him, like, you know, Rocky might be able to get sick and he might be able to, like, come out of it. And he'll do okay because he's just a super healthy kid. But you have all these other issues you might not come out of it the same way that he would. And so then he's like, oh, no, do I have the corona? Do I have the Rona? I'm like, no, you don't have the Rona. You just have everything else. Oh, Steph, I just admire so much the kind of conversations you're having with Colby when I hear that. But um, what interesting advice, Craig Nippenberg, to find kids and families whose values, whose rules align with yours right now. Um, let, let's yeah, circle back to that. Yeah, but with your rules and also with your health concerns. So with her son, you know, he's going to have higher risk. So she needs to find to slow that down some. Again, the parent who's high risk are going to have to slow that process down. I've encouraged using the term small hopes and sit down with your kids and have them write on slips of paper. You write it down, things they're hoping to do and putting it in a jar. And then as each day or what goes by, you, you kind of line them up like a staircase and say, hey, let's see if we can maybe do this one. Mm. Uh, and then we'll move up to the next one. But keep in mind that we might have to move down the staircase uh, if there's another announcement by health officials. So you're just kind of having them have small hopes. So one uh, a kid told me the other day, he said, Bonnie Bray ice cream's open again. <laughs> I'm like, that's on my list. Uh, that's the best place in the world. Um, but, you know, you're going to have to have your mask on. And you're going to have to stand in line six feet apart and wait, for, and it's takeout only. Um, but it's to sit down with them and just say, hey, what are the, the hopes we can have as our family and what other families can align with what we're doing? Uh, and I will tell you, based on what she, Stephanie just said, um, the social butterflies of the world, those kids are on the struggle bus right now. Mm. It's tough on them because they are so oriented towards socialization. 
I think I'm going to create a hope jar for myself. I, I like how much of your advice is good for kids of all ages. My guest is Craig Nippenberg. He's a therapist, clinical social worker in Denver, and he joins us as part of this Parenting in the Pandemic special from Colorado Matters. I, I have to think, of course, Craig, that a child's anxiety level is related to a parent's. And so I think back to Kate, whom we heard from earlier. She had her crying jag once her kiddo was out of the house yeah. and on his bike. But like, what's the balance between showing vulnerability and being sort of stiff upper lip? You know, it, it's a delicate balance. I'll tell you, one of the first memories of mine in my brain is watching my mother cry in front of the TV set when uh, Walter Cronkite was announcing uh, JFK was shot. And I, you know, I was five. I didn't know what the president was, who the president was, but all I knew was my mom was upset. Mm. And that really bothered me to see her crying. And so you, you don't want to suppress all those emotions around your kids. Kids need to know this, this is real life. And that's how you build resiliency. And what we're hoping for out of this is that our kids are more resilient, that adults are more resilient and our economy is more resilient and kids are more resilient. And and they have to experience, you know, some suffering and mourning and get through that. And then you keep moving forward. I think one of the best things parents can do is have, you know, take the keep the news away from the kids. And unless you have older ones and you want them to be educated, uh, that mom had her crying time by herself. That's great. That's a perfect place to do it. Uh, you know, have a, a private conversation with your partner at night uh, to deal with your own emotions uh, so that you're a little bit more clear when you address your child's emotions. Um, so one of the other activities I've been having families do is sit together and write on slips of paper things they're sad about or upset about or losses they've had. And then you put that in a box and you stick it on a shelf. But the hope jar you keep on the middle of the table. And so it's this balance between, yeah, we need to deal with our anxieties, our fears, our losses. We need to mourn. Um, more of that will be coming over the summer months. Uh, now that we're sort of out of survival mode, there's going to be a lot of mourning going on. And so we'll keep, we want to keep those in mind, but we really want to focus on our hopes and also getting involved helping others. So what you're trying to, with that cortisol, the, the best way to get rid of it is with increased oxytocin and serotonin levels. Mm. Now, playing with your friends does that. Uh, I encourage parents and their kids to have a lot of physical touch because the kids are missing out on touch, and that really develops your oxytocin levels and your serotonin feeling of well-being. Uh, and then also charitable activities. There's a ton of research on when you when you use your empathy as a verb and do something. Uh, it's it's wonderful for our mental health and our bodies. Huh. So that might, you know, for the little kids doing chalk drawings on the sidewalks, I've been seeing that everywhere. I'm not biking. There's chalk drawings on fences. Uh, you know, thank going over to, to help a neighbor pick weeds or mow for older teens. They can, they can mow. Or my daughter's been doing some grocery shopping for one of our elderly neighbors. But to really get involved and do something, maybe if it's even a, a thank you note to your mailman or you put a thank you note for the trash man out on the trash can. Not all children, of course, have the vocabulary or emotional maturity to explain their feelings. And a lot of what you've described is about leaning on language. Um, one parent on yes. Twitter said their youngster is screaming, seemingly out of boredom, and their demeanor has generally shifted toward melancholy. They ask yeah. uh, in the last minute or so here, Craig, any suggestions for lowering levels of anxiety in toddlers? 
That's a tough one because they don't have the language skills. Uh, art is a great thing if they're able to kind of just draw a little picture of their feelings. So I, I have a lot of kids that, that that's their form of communicating their emotions. And then lots of hugs for the toddler and trying to stick to as much as you can sort of a normal schedule for a toddler, and which is really tough on working parents because toddlers, they demand attention. Uh, and so having some structured activities that they do every day, could be the coloring book, could be watching Doc McStuffins, right? An episode of Doc McStuffins, uh, and then a little play time, and then a little rest time and lunch. Uh, your, your consistency is going to be important for the kids at, at that age. That's one of the best things they can have. Well, thanks so much once again, Craig Nibenberg of Denver. He's a therapist and clinical social worker. He's also the author of Wired and Connected, Brain-Based Solutions to Ensure Your Child's Social and Emotional Success. We'll be back in a moment with parents' fears about a summer slide. This is Parenting in the Pandemic from Colorado Matters and CPR News. It's a one-time-only live event, Sunday at 1 on CPR Classical. Music is so ephemeral. Cellist Yo-Yo Ma performs the complete cello suites by Bach to honor lives lost during the pandemic and pay tribute to the resilience of our communities. His two-year world tour of Bach started at Red Rocks in 2018 and returns to life in this special broadcast. Listen for Yo-Yo Ma Live Sunday at 1 o'clock. Ask your smart speaker to play CPR Classical. Even in a normal year, parents worry about a summer slide that kids will forget what they've learned once they're out of school. Those fears are compounded now, given that students haven't been in the classroom for months. Marie Jeté of Denver says remote learning just hasn't worked for her kindergartner. My five-year-old certainly does not have the capacity or wherewithal to do his schooling online. It has been challenging. We had his teacher come to our house to help him out. But other than that, we've just basically been trying to make it through each morning meeting and attempting to do some of the lessons that are offered, which he mostly refuses to do. Hmm. So how worried should you be about a summer slide? And are there ways to prevent it? Elizabeth Dutro chairs literacy studies at CU Boulder, the School of Education there. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Ryan. Good to be here. Listening to that mom, I get the sense that some parents feel, on on the one hand, a sense of relief, maybe that the school year is ending. Um, And on the other hand, it's sort of out of the frying pan into the fire with no real structured learning this summer. Uh, Even in normal times, what do you think, first off, of this idea of the summer slide? I think it makes perfect sense that families, particularly right now, but in other summers, too, worry about that. We hear about that a lot. But I do think there are ideas about learning and about literacy that can really allay those um, fears for parents. So I'm glad we get to talk about it. Yeah, me too. Allay some fears for us. Go ahead. What does the research tell us? (laughs) (laughs) For one thing, how we think about learning really matters as we think about summer And what we know is that learning is expansive. And connected to that in my field is also that we need to think very broadly about literacy. 
We know from research that rich learning and literacy development involves more than what parents might think of as school-like activities. So these are things like if you have the Wi-Fi capacity, exploring interests online, cooking and baking, taking care of plants and animals, using materials the family might have laying around to create and imaginative play, that all counts as learning. And in literacy specifically, all of that also counts as important for developing literacy skills. But I know parents can be worried about um, digital faces and screens yeah. as we go into summer. And I would reassure parents that we know from lots of research, so I hope it's freeing to embrace that digital reading and exploration counts as reading and literacy. Exploring topics or playing with digital tools really is developing important literacy skills. This is so interesting. I remember the prominent autism activist Temple Grandin telling me once that a really good portal into learning all sorts of subjects is something a kid is passionate about, right? So for me, it was sharks. I just couldn't get enough sharks. And and uh, Temple's advice was, well, use sharks as a way to learn about math. Use sharks as a way to learn about social behavior, uh, biology. So when you say exploring interests, and that could be digitally or otherwise, is, is that what you're getting at, do you think? That is exactly what I'm getting at. And um, I think there's a way to reframe this summer as parents and caregivers as an opportunity for kids to explore a passion or an interest with perhaps more freedom okay. than we may have offered them in the past. And we know that choice and passion matter a lot in learning. We all want to find out about things that interest us, whether we're children or adults. Um, so what we can do as parents is provide and encourage context for kid-driven learning to occur. It doesn't have to look like our assumptions of schoolwork. And in uh. fact, after this remote learning few months, kids need for it not to look like that for at least a while. Um, and it can be valuable for learning in ways that are impactful when students do go back to school. Now, what if the passion is not um, a traditionally acceptable one in parents' eyes? Like, you know, maybe my dad got sick of the shark thing eventually. But, um, you know, what if it were comic books? Right. There's there's historically lots of tension about that. Or if it's video games, are there good and bad passions or should we accept passions as, uh, you know, writ large? I'm so glad you asked that, because one of the points I would underline is that we have to accept passions writ large. So I will give an example of my youngest daughter okay. who was obsessed with Star Wars one year. <laughs> Multiple years. But I remember one year getting the like writer's notebook back from school at the end of the year, and it was just Star Wars almost every day for the, for the interest-driven writing that occurred. That is okay. If it's frozen, if it's zombies, if it's unicorns, if it's animals, um, this is a time for a child to just run with their passion. And one of hmm. the things that we might think about as parents is what that involves so often for children. It might feel like just like one interest, and that might concern us. But when you think about how that one interest travels from physical or digital books, exploring online, watching movies or shows, and then talking about them, 
maybe building with themed Legos, playing themed board games, dressing up in costumes, acting out scenes, playing the video games. All of that involves important literacies and rich learning. Uh, How are siblings as teachers? You know, siblings are a great resource as teachers. And I know some parents listening might be like, (laughs) one of the issues right now is that the siblings are together so much Uh that there's squabbling going on. Absolutely. But when there are opportunities for the older sibling to read to a younger sibling, to play a game, to find maybe find some space to let the younger sibling follow them in their interests and passions, um, involving the kids together. Those older siblings can be just crucial guides for rich learning for children. If they can stop the eye rolling. Uh, Is this a particularly challenging time, do you think, for only children? I think it is. I think there's probably no way around that. Um, I think... Probably only parents are really concerned about um, their own well-being as they're parenting alone, and only children don't have um, that sibling contact. Mm. But that doesn't mean that they also can't be pursuing their interests and have really rich interactions um, on the phone. I have an idea we can talk about in a bit about, you know, going back old school and some of the correspondence we use um, this summer. Oh, like pen pals, Um, you mean? Like pen pals, exactly. (laughs) I think it could not be a better time to start a pen pal relationship or maybe multiple relationships for children. That can involve pictures for little ones. It can involve letters or notes for older kids, and it can be a pen pal relationship with people they're missing in their lives right now. It could be school friends. It could be cousins they're not able to be in physical proximity with. It could be their grandparents. And just kind of that, that is, of course, developing important literacy skills, but it's also, it's a a thrill to get something in the mail. And I can imagine that being um, a really fun activity for kids this summer. Yeah, that's so funny, Elizabeth. I just Googled pen pals. It's in the digital world. There's actually a lot of ways you can sign up with pen pals around the world. Okay. Uh, I know that your specialty is trauma's effect on learning. So I wonder if we might wrap up with whether the pandemic counts as trauma and whether it will affect learning as a result in, in, I don't know, just about a minute. Yeah. It certainly does count as trauma. It's a collective trauma for the world, the nation, and the community that all kids are experiencing. My three-year-old niece said recently, there is a badness now. So at all ages, children are wise. They know the gravity of this situation. But it's also a very individual trauma for every child, for every adolescent. The shape of that takes is very particular to a family situation. But all kids, as your previous um, guest said, are experiencing loss in this and inviting children into conversations about it, but never requiring them to sit in a conversation that they may not want to have at that moment is important for learning. Kids may have trouble focusing. They may need to tune out, have some meltdowns, all of those things that I, for one, 
have been experiencing over these last couple of months. So in light of what is happening in our world and to our families, we just, kids and all of us need understanding. We need flexibility. We need opportunities to document when we want to how we're living history right now, day to day. And a meltdown of my child is not a reflection of my quality as a parent. That is for sure. Okay. Elizabeth, I thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. Elizabeth Dutro is author of The Vulnerable Heart of Literacy, and she chairs the Literacy Studies Program at the CU Boulder School of Education. Finally today, one dad's epiphany during this pandemic. We'll let Rich Boot of Fort Collins explain this. Realizing that my wife and I work too much and we pay a lot for daycare and kids go to school and then after school they go to friends' houses. And I loved hanging out with the family and it was this moment of thinking, I don't want this to end. Now it's the time of trying to figure out, as life returns to somewhat normal, to make sure we don't go back to our old status quo and we figure out a way to not be working 10 hours a day every day and not spending enough time together. Parenting more in the future sounds like what's on the docket for us. And that is Parenting in the Pandemic, a special from Colorado Matters. More on this topic as the week continues. Tomorrow, the uncertainties around summer camp. Special thanks to Michelle P. Fulcher, Nell London, Avery Lill, Carl Bielek, and Michael Hughes. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News.